Awesome. Well, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 7 this morning. We're going to look at verses 1 through 35, actually. Title of my message is Confidence in Jesus. Confidence in Jesus. And what that's all about is that as we're following Luke's gospel, he's he's telling us miracle after miracle, change life after change life. And these aren't just one-off story, next story, next story, just so you can say, well, that's that's an amazing story. Jesus healed a blind man. He cleansed a leper. No, he's leading us up to a point. And that point is that you will you will be confident in who Jesus is and make a decision. You'll make a decision to actually believe in him, which means commit your life to him. Not just being a distant follower. As the crowds are following after Jesus, many people are just wanting to see the next show, the next miracle. And out of the multitude, there's going to be a very small group who will actually make that decision to follow Jesus. Not because they don't have enough information or evidence of who Jesus is, but we just don't quite want to commit, do we? It's kind of a, it's an old, old story in church. We plan events even events that people request. And then often the people who request an activity are the ones who do not come. Hey, we've planned this very thing that you've asked for. Well, I'll see if that works out. There's something in us that doesn't want to quite commit, right? Are you still making eye contact with me? I'm like that too. We love the idea, but I'm going to wait and see how I feel like the day before. And the people that are following Jesus are really the same way. Luke 6.40 is a really important verse from last Sunday that we looked at. Luke 6.40, Jesus said that a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. That's where this is going, is that by coming into relationship with Jesus Christ, we're learning of him, and the byproduct, the result, is our lives are changed. It's so different from religion that points the finger and says you have to follow the rules, and as much as we want to, we we pretty much fail at following the rules, don't we? It's interesting how many Christians just feel bad, go through their whole Christian life feeling bad that they didn't quite live up to the rules. And even if the church didn't make the rules, you're pretty good at making your own rules. Right? This dialogue goes on in our brain. Lord, I am really going to be committed to you from now forward. Now on. Have you ever said that to the Lord? And to prove it, I'm going to read my Bible every day. And I'm going to do this. And I'm going to do this. And pretty soon you've got about three or four things that to you 
will mean I'm really committed. And about two weeks in, you discover that you didn't keep your rules. And you start feeling guilty for breaking the law that you wrote. God didn't ask you to make those rules, but you did it. Uh, it's, it's kind of the way we are. We're wired that way to make a commitment, set up these this proofs, break our own rules, and then just feel guilty when God, God never asked you to keep those rules. And what I'd like you to consider is whether you are prone to that, which is rhetorical, which you are, and shift over to a different way of relating to God. It's not based on your performance, but based on his performance. Not what you do for God that makes you feel like you're in good standing with God, but it's completely based on what the Lord has done for you. From the beginning, it's understood that we don't have the ability to follow through. Can you say amen? amen. Let's all agree that we have all failed. The different way is just to come as you are. And in this relationship that is more based in love rather than in law, you can just have an intimate relationship with the Lord. And from that place, what we discover is the Lord begins to change who we are. And we begin to do then by love the things that we never could have before. You literally become a new person. It's amazing to see. From that place, you shouldn't be feeling bad all the time. You should just be at peace. You should just enjoy the Lord, love the Lord, and begin to love people genuinely without this constant sense that you didn't measure up. It is a love relationship based on the grace of God rather than the law of religion. What we talked about last week in Luke 6 was Jesus begins to teach the crowds that are coming after him. And the crowds are gathering because of the proofs, the miracles, one after another. People are coming from regions all around. And he begins to teach. As I've outlined last week, you might go online and just listen to that, that a disciple of Jesus lives a blessed life. A disciple of Jesus loves people rather than judges. A disciple of, of Jesus leads people to God. Your life becomes a light to others. A disciple of Jesus lives a fruitful life. As the branch abiding in the vine, our life begins to then, just because you're connected to Jesus, you start to bear fruit that is good fruit. Lastly, a disciple of Jesus lays a foundation for the future, which is really for the storms, the difficulties that are coming in the future. And whenever those storms come, you have a solid foundation and the rains can come, but your life is not washed away by every crisis and upset that comes along. Jesus is 
out of these crowds, finding who is going to make a decision to follow him. And out of that group, he's going to then begin sending out disciples to do ministry. That's where we're going. That's what I'm looking for, to raise up more out of this church that are equipped for the ministry. That's the point of discipleship. And those who are going out by the twos, they're going to discover the power of God working through their lives. They're going to, they're going to be shocked at how God is going to work through their lives. Psalm 145 verses 8 and 9 says, The Lord is gracious, full of compassion, slow to anger, and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. So maybe we tend to read the Bible with a little suspicion. Maybe it's not quite what we thought. But the more you follow Jesus, you discover he is exactly who he claims to be. You can set aside that, that bit of suspicion that maybe I can't fully trust him. And I hope you come to that moment. In these verses we're going to look at today, Luke 7, 1 through 35, there's three stories. And in each of these stories, they are building to that point of decision. And they are just adding to what Luke has given to us, just increasing our confidence in who Jesus is so that you can say, Lord, I trust you. Take my life and use it. The first story, verses 1 through 10, is we are confident in the authority of Jesus. In the authority of Jesus. Follow with me. I'm going to read these verses. When he concluded all these sayings, that's the, the teachings back in the last chapter. In the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, and a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, speaking of the centurion, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you that I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well who had been sick. This whole story 
of the Roman centurion and his servant who is sick centers around that word authority, which gives the centurion a confidence to believe in Jesus' power to heal his servant. A Roman centurion, if you read the Bible much, you know this is a familiar type of person in the Bible. Roman centurions were men of great authority, um, having authority over anywhere from 80 to 100 men, depending on which commentary you read. They were generally well-respected in the community. And in the Bible, whenever you see them in the New Testament, they are really men of great character and honored within the community. This man, above and beyond, loved Israel, even though he was a Roman, and built a a synagogue in Capernaum. But in his humility, he thinks that Jesus can heal his servant, but he is not even worthy to have Jesus come to his house. And so he sends servants out to even make this request. This is unusual. A servant, a slave in this culture could easily be disregarded, uh, seen as, as property, even could be killed by this Roman centurion. And yet he cares for his servant. The centurion says, you don't even need to come to my house Say the word and my servant will be healed. Isn't that amazing? Say the word and my servant will be healed. And how does he know this? Because he understands authority. He says, I also am a man under authority and I have authority. If I say to my servants that something would be done, it's going to be done. There is no question. There is no begging. Our understanding of faith and authority is a little different, isn't it? If I pray hard enough, if I believe strong enough, we put so much of the burden of whether God is going to work on our ability to believe strong enough. Don't we? Not to mention the fact that if it's an easy problem we have, we think God can probably do it. But if it's a real big problem that we're having, we're not quite sure. Of course, he can, but this is harder. And so the way that we see the whole thing is completely from our perspective, not from God's perspective. There is no difficulty with God. There's no, well, that's a, that's a, That's a hard one, Terry, you've asked me to do. Heal me of a cold or heal me from cancer. It's the same to God. It is the same to God. It is done by the authority of God, not by how much I can beg. Though prayer should be persistent. We could could have that discussion. But the clarity and the simplicity of this man's faith is something worth hearing and it is so powerful that Jesus wants everyone that is hearing to learn this lesson. I haven't found such great faith even among the people of God. 
Here is a Roman centurion who has a greater demonstration of faith than all of Israel. Wow, put them to shame. And it's simply because he is a man of authority that understands how authority works. And because he understands how authority works and because it's obvious by the works of Jesus that Jesus has this kind of authority. He has the power to speak and it is done. Faith is trust in the authority of God's word. That's all it is. And so the Bible tells us, the book of Hebrews, that if you want to increase in faith, learn more of God's word. The more you know of God's word, your faith should then increase because you know more and more of the character and the nature of God. It's hard to have faith in someone you don't even know about. Even the littlest faith in the promises of God are enough to get the job done. Luke 4.36 says, And they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word is this? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. A few chapters ago where Jesus is just doing miracle after miracle, and the people are seeing that he just speaks a word, and even the demons obey. Jesus commands and it is done. We, I want us to grow in our confidence in the authority of God. We are completely dependent on him. Now here's the thing. Because he loves us, we know that he is going to speak a word on our behalf. And that really picks us up into our second story. Verses 11 through 17, it is about confidence in the compassion of Jesus. Because many great leaders have had authority and power, but they didn't also have compassion for the people that they ruled over, did they? Follow with me. Pick up at verse 11. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. A large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, So there's the second thing we want to know about Jesus. In the first story, look for the word, the key word. First one, it was about the authority of Jesus. And the second story, it is about the compassion of Jesus. He had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin and those who carried him stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report 
about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. Now, Nain was about 25 miles from Capernaum. The Jews buried their dead the same day. So the group from Capernaum have now traveled to Nain about 25 miles. It's probably the afternoon. That boy has probably died that day. And you have this world collide situation. The mourning group in Nain and this joyful group coming from Capernaum and the great things that Jesus has done there. And as they're coming together, Jesus sees this mourning group and the coffin. He sees the widow. He then is moved with compassion. They didn't have to beg him to help. And that's what I want you to see about Jesus. The Bible tells us that the Jesus we know from the Bible is moved with compassion. When he looks on you, what do you think he sees? I know what I think whenever I have think I have failed God or done something really wrong or I haven't kept my promises. I think God is looking at me with, with disgust. He's disappointed in me again. Do you feel that way? How many times have you said to God you would do something and you didn't again? What do you think God is thinking of you? Well, especially at that moment, I don't want to talk to him because he's probably either ticked or really disappointed or something I don't want to hear about. And what the Bible wants us to know is that he looks on us in our weakness with compassion. He already knows what we're made of. Now, he might be sad for us or disappointed that we're struggling and wanting us to do better, but pointing the finger and judging and ready to crush us is not who Jesus is. He looks upon our struggles with compassion. When the Pharisee Nicodemus needed to know about who Jesus was and why he had come, what was the first thing Jesus wanted Nicodemus to know, the Pharisee, about the plan of God? John three sixteen, For God, what? Is so ticked. <laughs> Jesus said to him, are you a ruler of God and you don't understand spiritual things? Read John 3. And he's like, let me get to the point. For God so loved the world right there is completely different from how that Pharisee would have thought of God and the world. God's judgmental, angry, harsh, and certainly God is not thinking of the world. God only loves us, the good people, the Jews, and especially Jewish men. They had, they had just distorted the whole thing. The love of God is all over the Old Testament. The very heart of the law, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. 
you shall love the Lord with all your heart. It's right there in the heart of the law. And yet they distorted it into being something else. And while we are judgmental of them, are you judgmental of them? Did I get that worked up in you? Of course, we do the same thing. God is motivated by love. And not just love for us because we're the good ones. He loves the world. He's just full of people that are not even thinking of him. He is filled with compassion. Matthew 9.36 says that when he, Jesus, saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. That's us. I think I'm strong. I feel pretty strong some days, but really I'm not. The disciples and especially the apostles are trying to figure out how to be his men, his representatives. They're going to have trouble learning how to be like Jesus. And probably the key chapter that he speaks to them is Mark 10 about being a servant. That the son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve. Mark 10. The Christian leader is a servant leader. Let me tell you, that is a hard combination of qualities to get together into the same person. We have many leaders who are not servants. We have many servants who are not leaders. If I can get a pastor that I work with to be both the leader of the church and a servant of the church, things will happen. Many strong-willed, gifted pastors are amazing in the pulpit and horrible with the people. And there are many pastors who are great with the people and just not leading the church anywhere. The shepherd is going somewhere and he's caring for the people. That's Jesus. And that is who we are to be, servant leaders. The third story I want us to see is in verses 18 through 35, and it has to do with confidence in the person of Jesus or who Jesus is. And this this is around John the Baptist. He needs clarification about who Jesus is. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus saying, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Verse 20, when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And that very hour, notice this, that very hour, He cured many of infirmities, inflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, 
lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. From Jesus forward in history, many will come and say they're the Messiah. Do you know that? It didn't happen before Jesus. But he said in Matthew 24, others will come saying, I am the Christ. Even in our day, people have claimed to be the Messiah, the Christ. It's easy to make the claim. It's another thing to actually prove it. And Jesus says, just go and tell John what you've seen. Tell him the proofs. Jesus is not saying, I said I was. What do I have to say it again? He's just saying, go tell John the exact things that you have seen. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the gospel or the poor have the gospel preached to them. A reference you might look down, and there are others in the Old Testament, Isaiah 29, 18, and 19. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord. The poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. The signs that Jesus is doing are all these signs. I feel like I keep saying this week after week. These are the proofs. One after another, raising the dead, sight to the blind, cleansing the leper. No one has done these, these things. And they keep happening over and over, and the more people that come to Jesus, and he heals them all, and these crowds are watching this, what should be their response? It should be obvious. The proof is right in front of them to believe in Jesus. Go and tell John the things you've seen. Now, John is in prison. John the Baptist. He's about to be executed. He's in prison for publicly saying that Herod had committed adultery. And for that, he is going to be executed. But here he is at the end of his life, and he wants to know that his life counted for something. Don't you ever ask that question? I want to know, Lord, whatever I'm doing, am I doing what you've asked me to do? And at this point in my life, is my life counting for something? You know, the Bible says that all of us have that deep in our hearts to want to know what is our purpose in life. The Bible also says that the way you discover that is by coming into relationship with Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's the creator. And you see, the creator is the one who sets the purpose for the object. I used to build furniture, not because I love so much working with wood, but because we were so poor that I couldn't afford to buy furniture. So I figured out how to do it and bought some tools and became all right at it. But you don't just buy wood 
make some scribbles on it, cut some things and throw it together. You, you think about what's the purpose of this thing before you even build it. I need a table. So I'm going to choose the right wood, make the design, build it. And everything that is created has a purpose. Purpose is obvious to all of us. There must be purpose in life. And that alone is evidence for intelligent design. Because you see, random chance never produces purpose. It's funny to find something laying around your garage, maybe that, that is broken, you don't use it anymore, and you, you just need, have you ever needed a hammer and you just grab something else that's big and heavy? Well, that'll work. When something is no longer serving its purpose, it's broken, usually. And when the Lord fixes us and makes us whole, our purpose is restored. And there's no greater, greater fulfillment in life than coming to know the Lord and being made whole and finding your purpose. The Bible says that God has even prepared a good work for each of you to do. He's already prepared it beforehand, and then he is shaping you and preparing you for that good work. And John is just saying, did I do it? I've come. He knows he's at the end of his life. He sends servants to Jesus and says, are you the one? Now, his very purpose was to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And he has believed that Jesus is Messiah. Remember, they're actually cousins. John the Baptist and Jesus are cousins. John is just a little bit older. But when you get too close to something, you can get a little fuzzy. And Jesus gives John the confidence that he has done his job. He can be at peace even there in a Roman prison cell. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the rest of these verses this morning. But if you look at verses 24 through 35, Jesus begins to now address the crowds. The crowds who have been following and watching and watching, who, in spite of the evidence, can't make up their minds. And he points out three things that I think are important. Number one, after the servants go back to John, John's disciples go back to him. Jesus honors John the Baptist. And to the crowds, he says to them, didn't you realize when you came out to hear John who he was? What did you think you were coming out to see? A reed shaking in the wind? A man clothed in soft apparel? You remember those words in Luke 7? No, but you came out and heard a great, great prophet. You didn't realize who you were listening to. 
In verses 31 to 33, he begins to talk to them now about themselves and their indecision. In spite of the powerful preaching of John the Baptist, in spite of the miracles, in spite of the dead being raised, the lepers cleansed, on and on and on, maybe even many of them have been healed by Jesus. And Jesus says in verses 31 to 33 that you are like children playing in the streets. All of us know how fickle children are. They beg and beg for something, you give it to them, and they don't want it anymore. <laughs> they, they have to have that toy, and you bought it for them, and, it, and they've moved on. And Jesus is saying, you're like children calling to each other in the streets. In verse 32, Jesus says, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned for you and you did not weep. He's like saying, we can't get it right. What do you want? And as much as I, I, I am I'm confessing to you, I'm judgmental of people like that. I am like that. Now, I know I'm prone to be like that. And it's better just to be honest about it instead of making some pronouncement like, like you're not like that. You're so morally superior. You would never be like that. We're all like that. We have to, at some point, really pay attention to what we know of Jesus and make a decision. We can't on and on, year after year, gather more evidence as if we are just being good students. Bible knowledge does not transform your life. In fact, the Bible talks about it actually becoming a hindrance that if you store up more knowledge and you do not yield your heart to the Lord, it begins to weigh you down. A blindness starts to set over your eyes. In fact, that's really Israel, full of knowledge and yet hard in their hearts. The Bible does its job to speak to your heart. And if I've done my job this morning, you are a little, a little uncomfortable. Do you know the preacher's job? I forget who, who said this, uh, some preacher of times past. He said, the preacher's job is to, is to, see if I can get it right. Oh, I had it until just a second ago. Something about we are to, do you remember it? The preacher's job is to, uh, for those who are comfortable and not, not aware of their need, we're supposed to make them uncomfortable. I'll get it right and bring it back next week. It was really powerful. What is it? Something like that. We're supposed to make the comfortable uncomfortable, the comfortable uncomfortable and comfort those who are already feeling bad about their lives. And if you're convicted 
and your the, your the lights are going on, your eyes are opened about who the Lord is and the need in your life. If you you're just like right there, I see it, and then you say no. Do you know that that hurts your heart? It hardens your heart, and repeatedly doing that hardens your heart more and more and more. It's like building up a callus on your skin where you begin to feel less and less and less. And the Bible says that if you say no and no over and over enough times, you begin to then even lose your ability to believe in the Lord. Jesus said that about the Pharisees. They couldn't believe. Not they wouldn't believe, but they couldn't. So, Praise the Lord that you might feel convicted. We're to convict the comfortable and comfort the convicted. Something like that. I'll keep trying. The third thing Jesus talks about with this group is that they tend to find any excuse to get out of making a decision to follow the Lord. In verse 33, they said, well, John has a demon. You know, the power in John's life, they just excused it. And then in verse 34, they said, well, Jesus eats and associates with sinners. He Guilty. He hung out with sinners and tax collectors. But rather than seeing that he loved people, You see, if you want an excuse not to follow the Lord, you can make up one. You can find one. Amen? And they looked at Jesus hanging out with the needy and said, well, he associates with sinners. But if he didn't associate with sinners, what would they have said? Oh, he's elite. You know, he doesn't love people. You can't get it right. So it's better just to do what the Lord tells you to do. Then people can make up their own minds. Worship team, you can come up. And I'm going to finish with this last scripture from Peter. In 2 Peter, chapter 1, Peter coming near the end of his life and ministry, he says this about the clarity and the confidence of believing in the Lord. He says, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. Do you hear that? No prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke 
as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. We have confidence in the Lord. And in whatever part in your life you tend to avoid making a decision or say, I'll think about that, but you find you've been saying that for the past five or 10 years, I'll think about that. There does come a point in which you have to make a decision because to delay, to delay, to delay is harming you.